Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison, and with me today is the revered David Emmett from motomatters.com, and we are going to speak about the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez. Hello, David. How are you doing? I am not so bad, Neil. Um, and yourself, cooling off a little bit after the heat of Jerez? Yes, I'm still applying the uh, the after sun after uh, what was a, a very hot and sticky uh, weekend down in the, the Andalusian sun. Um, we had quite a quite an intriguing uh, fourth uh, fourth round of the 2017 season, um, which really, in some ways, threw up more questions than it did answers. Um, the MotoGP race in particular had everyone slightly dumbfounded with uh, not just the result, but um, some of the comments of the riders afterwards. Um, it wasn't just riders that seemed slightly perplexed as to why things had gone wrong for them on the on the Sunday. Um, race engineers, journalists, everyone kind of. Uh, didn't uh, know how to make so much sense of it. Um, what was your what was your take on Sunday's race, David? Uh, well, yeah, everything we thought we knew about uh, Jerez turned out to be completely wrong. Um, you know, the uh, the the Honda's were supposed to struggle at uh, at Jerez, and uh, they uh, uh, managed to go one two in the race. Danny Pedrosa wins. Danny Pedrosa gets the pole. Danny Pedrosa uh, gets the fastest lap in the race. It's supposed to be a Yamaha track. Uh, Maverick Vinales had a um, had a poor race, and Valentina Rossi had an absolute blooming nightmare. Uh, the Ducati's not supposed to go around there very well, and Jorge Lorenzo en- ends up on the podium. So, yeah, everything is uh, it, it, yes, everything everything we thought about Jerez was wrong. <laughs> exactly, especially when you look at the at the history books. I think the last time a Yamaha failed to finish on the podium at Jerez was 2006. Um, Ducati haven't finished on the podium there in the dry since 2009. So as you as you said, the history book was quite rightly uh, was was kind of ripped up in some respects. Yeah, exactly. The the, the interesting dynamic for me was um, Lorenzo on the Ducati um, because I mean you know we all went in saying oh the Ducati's terrible around there. They'd never there was a, a statistic I found that they'd never finished a Ducati hadn't finished. Uh, the Jerez race within 26 seconds, I think, of the uh, uh, of the winner since about I think 2009. Since, yeah, since 2009. Or 10. And um, uh, yeah, 2009 or 2010, I can't remember. But basically, certainly since Casey Stoner actually got off the bike, and then um, it turns out that uh, not only does uh, Lorenzo get on the podium, but also uh, Dovizioso finished. He had his best finish there, and he's 20, uh, 20, well, nearly twenty-three seconds off the pace. So it's 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 clearly it's probably not the best uh, track for. Ducati, but it's uh, there's more to it than it just being a bad track for Ducati. It's much more about you know whether you actually like the uh, uh, like the track or not. Absolutely. Um, no, I guess if you want to look at it in a very simple um, simple way, you could say that Honda tested there after the Phillip Island test and before the Qatar test, the final pre the final preseason test of the year. Um, Ducati, I think, went there after the first race of the season. And um, was that something that really helped them um, when they well, the, came to the, the race weekend? The Honda riders certainly didn't seem to think so. Um, uh, and I think it was much more about the conditions rather than uh, rather than the race, or rather than than actual testing. There's a lo- sort of lots of factors here. First of all, the Hondas have been making progress. They, they've been getting the uh, they've been getting the bike sorted out. Uh, again, we have a new engine, and it takes them a little while to get the electronics sorted out and to get the uh, the the bike to behave. Um, uh, that certainly seemed to seem to help, uh, but more than that, I think the it was just a very very low grip track, and uh, when grip is low, the Hondas do better because they don't lose so much. I mean, if you don't have very much acceleration 
um, or, well, very much acceleration. If the bike just wants to wheelie, if you've got rear grip, uh, then not having rear grip means it's an actual improvement. The bike is better also sort of later in the race when the uh, where, when the tyres go down, whereas the Yamahas rely much more on uh, grip to carry corner speed and, and to get drive out of corners, which is where they're very strong. And once the grip goes away, then they're, you know, pretty much done for. Then they're in real trouble. So that was that. I think for me was was the real problem. So in essence, it was more about Yamaha's having an absolute disaster than it was about Honda's being incredibly strong. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a fairly good assessment. I mean, the tires were difficult. Conditions are conditions were particularly difficult. Also, because the track itself it hasn't been resurfaced for fourteen years, and because the, the F one doesn't go there, it's there's no bumps, so um, it's still in reasonable shape in terms of bumps but it's absolutely slick as uh, slick as ice for a lot of the year if you compare the motor 2 and motor 3 testing times back in february when track temperature was maybe 26 27 28 and now they're well over a second slower uh, because the track's that much greasier so it's just uh, it was just yeah it, it did very very uh, very different conditions and the, the, the track itself is just uh, it, it's getting old and needs a new surface yeah, I mean, we've seen it for years now when um, when World Superbikes and Grand Prix bikes have been going to rest in November or, or February and the temperatures are cool. They're usually able to run one, maybe two seconds faster a lap than, than they do during the race. But the thing that was slightly perplexing here was it almost changed from day to day, from Saturday. And basically, the if you look at pace from FP4, um, I mean, on Saturday, it was almost as hot, let's say, as Sunday. Um, Monday, again, was as hot as the race day um, and on both Saturday and FP4 and in the test on Monday you saw guys like Vinales able to run you know a pace in the, the 39s and the 40s and they weren't able to get close to that on um, on Sunday so what, what changed exactly for the race is it is it a case of you know the rubber that's being put on by the, the support classes yeah I mean to me that that's a really big factor I think the big difference between them um, uh, certainly shall we say Saturday and Sunday was also temperature because they're Jerez has a has sort of like a critical temperature um, uh, threshold, if you like. Once once temperatures get over what twenty, uh, get over about or track temperatures get over about forty forty one degrees, uh, then the tires really oh well grip really drops off a cliff. Um, I think in uh, track temperature was about sort of like forty thirty nine forty for FP four, which is just under that critical uh, threshold, and then. Uh, there were track temperatures during the race recorded of sort of like 40, 44, 45, 46, which is uh, really when when there's no grip left. And as for testing, I mean, yes, everyone was a lot quicker on to, during testing, but testing is always different. Testing is always, um, uh, uh, yeah, as you said, actually, as you rightly said, the, the 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 grip is different because all of the Dunlop rubber has been cleaned off, and you're only on uh, you're only running around on the Michelin rubber. And of course, you've also got uh, the the fact that um, uh, people are not running. 27 laps they're running sort of six seven laps at a time and so it's not it's it's really hard to compare one of the interesting things i read actually was uh, an article uh, matt, Ar- matt oxley's take on the race uh, on motorsportmagazine.com uh, um, and i think he had spoken to christoph bergenion cal crustle's crew chief and one of his ideas was that um basically hereth is quite a short track um and basically the races are longer in terms of laps so um at, at 
Texas, for example, at the Circuit of Americas, you have Moto3 bikes doing 15, 16 laps, uh, Moto2 bikes doing 18 laps. Whereas in Jerez, each corner is going to have maybe, say, 25 laps of Moto2 rubber on it rather than just, you know, 18 or something like that. And, you know, he seemed at a loss to explain it as well, but that was one of the one of the kind of possible reasons he threw forward. Um, yeah, but I think, as you said, it's probably a, a combination of many things. Motor 2 was definitely a factory. It always has been the, since the introduction of the Motor 2 class, really. Uh, MotoGP riders have complained about the amount of rubber which the uh, which the bikes leave on the on the track. Because they tend to slide, they don't have any uh, engine braking control, so it's much more down to the riders. So they you know, they really are sort of smearing their rubber all over the corners. Jerez is also much more of a single track um, uh, or single line track than Circuit of the Americas is in, in a certain extent uh, so yeah they're going the Moto2 bikes are going over there far more often they are um, uh, much more on the racing line and um, uh, and it was hot and they were leaving leaving more rubber so yes it was uh, I think I mean it's always a combination of factors but that was that, that was that was definitely one of them now, I haven't really touched on the leader uh, and the race winner uh, I should say, um, Danny Pedrosa. It was quite a stunning weekend from Pedrosa. And in terms of, you know, the full race weekend, I think he was fastest in both sessions on uh, Friday, uh, took the pole position, um, led every lap of the race and was just just dominant, really. He was excellent. Um, and even Mazzano last year, I, you know, he was great in the race, but we didn't see that kind of domination from him for, for the whole race weekend. Um, this was Pedrosa absolutely back to his flying best. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the this is the Barossa which we know about. With it, also worth mentioning, um, uh, by winning this, uh, he becomes the first rider ever to win uh, at least one race in every single season for sixteen seasons, which is just an astonishing achievement. Yeah, one more than Valentino Rossi. Yeah, one more than Valentino Rossi. Although that might have been different if Valentino Rossi had, had not decided to uh, to give the old Ducati a try. Um, <laughs> But uh, but he did, and so the record belongs to belongs to Pedrosa. But you could see what I I think for me the most telling moment of the weekend was was uh, in the press conference after qualifying when uh, Pedrosa went out uh, during qualifying and Marquez was uh, was was sitting behind him following him around following him around, and um, Pedrosa said to him or said to himself, you know, well, all right, you want to, if you want to try and beat me if you want to try and take pole from me by following me around just just you try just try and match the speed um uh, and he couldn't he got close but he couldn't and that i think was a sign most of all of just the the the, the confidence which pedrosa had in his own pace and in, and in his own speed yeah, and it seemed at that moment um, niggled Pedroza really because he didn't just bring it up once in the the press conference after qualifying. I think he brought it up three times, um, and you know that's usually a sign that it's something that's playing on the rider's mind. Um, you know, I think for for Marquez to do that to someone like Vinales during preseason, okay, he's trying to you know play some games with him, but when he's doing it to someone like Danny Pedroza, who has been his teammate since he's graduated to MotoGP. Um, you know, it's it's something different. It almost as if you know Pedroza thought Marquez had maybe crossed the line in doing that. Definitely, it was definitely uh, because the trouble is this narrative always exists of you know Danny Pedroza being the number two rider and all the rest of it. And I think sometimes Danny thinks, um, uh, let me just remind you people that I'm actually quite a good rider. <laughs> so uh, uh, you want you may want to bear that in mind. And certainly, just his performance. I think that the way he rode was outstanding. He he loves Jerez. What was it? Two thousand last year was the only year that he 
when he finished the race in MotoGP that he's actually finished off the podium. Um, uh, he's really good here. The he can use the tires as well. He doesn't he doesn't stress the tires. He went out on the I think he went out with the uh, with the medium. Um, it 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 was just um, yeah it's just an absolutely superb perform, uh, performance. Also the way he managed the race, you know, Mark Marquez got a little, started closing the gap under a second, and uh, Pedrosa would up the pace again. And even I think Marquez closed within a, a second, maybe just under a second, with three laps to go, perhaps. And you thought there was going to be a late, a late push, but Pedrosa just immediately upped his pace again, and there was almost uh, you know it was almost as if he was riding with just a little bit in hand. Um, and it was something that Carl Crutchfield said to us on Friday. He thought that this was Danny his best chance of winning maybe this this entire season just because um Crutzel felt that the hardest front tire available was not hard enough um and he, he thought you know for for a guy like himself or like marquez who breaks so late so deep puts so much pressure on the front tire um usually find that it overheats always have to run the hardest option they just thought it was it was a bit too uh, a bit too soft for their liking so um yeah Pedroza obviously doesn't break so late as those guys doesn't press so much or put so much pressure on the front tire um and he felt that that was to blame um but you know that's not taking anything away from danny um who was who was great and suddenly um he now sits ten points behind the championship lead. Yeah, I mean he's definitely right back into the championship, and I think uh, I think Crutchlow is wrong to say that this was. I mean, yes, it was his, his best chance of winning, but it's certainly not his only chance. I mean, there's um there's a whole bunch um a bunch of other races he could be uh, good at and actually be uh, be a factory. And so I think he's definitely one to watch out for. What about you? You do you think uh, do you think Danny's back? Do you think Danny is going to be a, a, a proper factory in the championship again? It's it's a real tough one to say. I think he's definitely going to be a guy that's challenge for more race wins um, as the season goes on um, I think he's going to be a, ro- a regular podium threat um, you know everything he's kind of done before pre-season rearranging his team um, working with new crew chief working with new management um, bringing in Seti Gibernau as kind of a rider coach um, having a new personal sort of guy that hangs out with him on the track and you know takes him places and looks after him almost Um you know, Petros has been quite, uh, you know, he's, he's really gone through quite a lot of changes to, to get to this place. And I don't know, I think um, having something like what happened on uh, Saturday where, you know, Marquez kind of laid down that challenge to him, um, you know, could have just been the moment where Pedroza thinks, OK, you know, that was the little spark of motivation that I need. Um, I still, I still, yeah, I think he could be in the mix. I, I definitely think he's going to be a regular guy in the mix for the top three. But for the World Championship, I mean, there's three other incredibly strong guys there. Um, so I wouldn't be putting any money on Danny just yet. What about you, David? I mean, yes, he's still an outsider for the championship. But, you know, um, if things keep going his way, you, uh, you've really got to take him into account. And as you say, you rightly pointed out all of those changes sort of to, to his entourage and to his basically the way that all the things which he does in a weekend, that makes a big uh, I think that makes a big difference. It's all about that. It's all about conf- uh, confidence. You know, uh, motorcycle racing is all about confidence. It's about um, uh, having the confidence having confidence in your bike in the in the people around you having the confidence to believe the self-belief that you can actually go out and win so uh yeah for sure that's uh um uh, that has definitely changed for danny and i think that makes a that makes a massive uh, a massive difference talking about confidence the man in third place definitely had a, a bit of swagger back in his step uh, throughout the weekend and it was clear from the off that uh jorge lorenzo was going to be in good shape this weekend 
Yeah, right from uh, right from the start, he was back. Uh, you know, at the at the front. Well, not entirely at the front of the uh, during practice, but certainly up amongst the front runners. And uh, the gap to the front was much better. Much better. I went out during FP two to uh, have a look. And it was clear that he looked a little bit different. He was running a lot more aggressively than I've seen him running around Jerez in the past. He was being a lot more physical with the bike, and and it was obviously it was obviously working very well. Uh, he got off to a fairly poor start during the uh, uh, during the race, but he you know worked his way forward. He still ended up uh, what was it fifteen sixteen uh, yeah fourteen fourteen point seven seconds. Uh, behind the winner, which is still a sizable gap, but he was still impressive on the bike. He looked, uh, he actually looked like he was back in contention. And, and we're coming to a run of um, of the four races which he won in 2015 after a, after a really difficult start: Jerez, Le Mans, uh, Mugello, Barcelona. So these are all four tracks where he goes really, really well. Um, that's got to be certainly in his mind and he was extremely well yeah he was quite defiant really after the race and um uh after the race and after qualifying about uh about all the people who'd criticized him and looking at the the tracks coming up barcelona you wouldn't say so perhaps but certainly Le Mans and Mugello were also tracks that have historically been quite good for ducati as well as for Jorge lorenzo so it will be quite interesting to see um if at Le Mans and certainly Mugello, if he can be, you know, similarly fighting for the podium, um, or maybe even more, um, it's tough to know. Yeah. So Jorge was speaking after the race, David, and you know, I think we could both agree that Qatar was quite lackluster. Uh, Argentina was almost like a rookie era crashing into the back of, the, of Ianone at the first corner, and and uh, once again, you know, Austin didn't really grab the you know take hold of you and say that this was this was something special you're watching it just looked like quite a, a difficult race um jorge said that the main change is basically um is basically getting more kilometers in the bike gaining experience with it understanding more how it should be ridden is that is that all that that it changed for Jerez, other than the fact that he loves the track I disagree slightly about Austin. I mean, like, yes, Austin, if you just look at the result, Austin didn't look like a fantastic result, but um, uh, uh, like a fantastic race for Lorenzo. But they changed his, uh, the, they changed the seat position um, back to the original seat unit, which lifts him up and puts him further forward on the bike. Because uh, during winter testing, they'd basically tried to turn the Ducati into a Yamaha by, by putting a lower seat unit on. And it took him sort of like a race and a half or a, a week and a half for him to figure out that, okay, this is not, um, this is really not going to work for me. Um, at at Austin, there were if you looked, there were signs. There were signs of, of, of a bit of a breakthrough, because in uh, in Qatar he was just nowhere. Um, in uh, Argentina, well, we don't know what happened at Argentina because he managed to take himself out in the uh, in the first corner. Sure, but he feels that he could have finished in the top six. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> but but every everyone that. everyone who crashes out of a race feels they could have comfortably finished on the podium if only they hadn't have crashed out. So you always have to treat that with a with a little bit of uh, a little bit of care. Um, but Lorenzo, yeah, he certainly he felt a little bit more confident there. He, he felt a lot more confident at. Um, uh, at Austin as well, and he uh, yes, he finished ninth, but he was in the battle for sixth for a long time, and, and only lost out in the last few laps. And so you know he is, it, it, as you say, it's just kilometres. It's just getting kilometres on the bike, getting more and more, spending more time on the bike, which is also the reason that they uh, stayed on for the uh, for the test at uh, uh, on Monday, which hadn't originally been in the plan for the factory Ducati riders, um, uh, and it ended up making. 
I think uh, making a big difference is I think there is there are real signs of progress and there's more to come. Yeah, I think it, we could probably say that um, Ducati wouldn't have had such a difficult weekend at Jerez last year had the tyres not been changed so well the rear tyre been changed so dramatically after Scott Redding's incident in in Argentina, um, and if there was one factory that that change to the harder rear tyre for the Hareth race weekend affected most. It was definitely Ducati. Um, so maybe this was, you know, this is something that they could have done last year had it not been for that switch to to the harder rear tyres. Um, and Lorenzo has always has been speaking a lot recently about um, about learning to use the rear brake more. In his days with Yamaha, he never really had to use it so much. And now he's kind of, he finds that it's helping with um, with kind of calming the bike down and corner entry. And, you know, this is still something that he's having to think about. Um, he's still it's not coming quite so naturally to him um, so to get a podium in his fourth race um, at Jerez I think we could say is uh, is a fairly fairly strong weekend and a job well done for the five time world champion okay so that pretty much brings us to a close of part one of, uh, of this episode we'll be right back with part two where we'll speak about Monday's test and just what went wrong with Yamaha Neil, what can people do to help the Paddock Pass podcast? Well, other than listening to the Paddock Pass podcast, they can be following the Paddock Pass podcast on Twitter. That's at Paddock Pass Pod. On Facebook, that's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And they can also be leaving reviews on iTunes because it greatly helps other viewers and listeners find the show. That sounds like a good plan. So welcome back to the second part of the, this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Now we've covered really the, the top three, uh, Honda and Ducati being quite strong at Jerez. It was quite the contrary for Yamaha, um, where their problems didn't just extend to Sunday, but also a little bit in, into Monday for the uh, for the post-race test. Um, David, what exactly went wrong with, uh, with Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi? Two things went wrong with Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi, mostly tyres and partly set-up. Certainly Maverick Vinales blamed, uh, blamed the tyres, and you could see right from the start, um, uh, right from the start of the race that uh, Vinales was struggling really, really badly with, his, uh, with the front end of the tyre. I was just watching the... Um, uh, on-board footage from Vinales' bike, and uh, when uh, Juan Zarco came past him at, into dry sack at uh, turn six, afterwards you see he has a massive moment. The front, the front really goes away from him, moves, steps out about half a meter before he gets it back, and then and then turns. Then he had the big moment with uh, Ianoni where Ianoni had to um, stand the bike up um, because you know Vinales had, had almost lost the uh, had almost lost the front and went, and had to catch it. Um, he just had absolutely no um, confidence at all in the front end, and uh, so we, you know he still crossed the line in six. But uh, but he had, he, by God, he had to work hard to uh, to finish in six, and he he wasn't. But he was he spent all the time after the race trying not to publicly blame Michelin while uh, making it perfectly clear that he was uh, that he was blaming Michelin for giving giving him a dodgy front uh, front tire. He was yeah. and he was much more critical in Spanish than in uh, Spanish and Catalan than in English, right, Neil? Yeah, he was indeed. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was kind of saying that if he really spoke his true mind, uh, he would be getting a, an email um, with uh, some fairly harsh words telling him to shut up and not uh, not speak any further on the issue. Um, and yeah, it was clear that Vinales was very very frustrated that 
I think it was almost the frustration that, you know, harks back to what happened in, in Austin. He still feels that the front tyre there was to blame for, for his crash on the, the second lap of that race. Um, and I'm sure he came to Jerez fully expecting to be at least, at the very least, fighting for the race win here. Um, so in Maverick's eyes, we're probably looking at uh, a possible 40 point. Well, he got 10 points for third, so possible 30 points dropped in the past two races. Uh, his championship lead is gone. And uh, kind of all the momentum that he, he you know, worked so hard and building over the preseason is uh, is not lost. Um, but what was quite quite trifling, David, was, uh, you know, Vinales on Saturday wasn't best pleased with how the bike was performing. But then he was saying that uh, he was having real issues with rear grip. He said the bike was spinning so much on the exit of left turns, he couldn't get any drive, he couldn't get any traction, and that was really what was holding him back. Um, by Sunday, he said that the rear traction had disappeared. They'd made some real good progress and, you know, set the bike up accordingly to address those issues. And, and as you said, then there were issues with the front. And, you know, I guess, could it have been possible that what they did was just, you know, sacrifice some of the, the, the feeling he had on the front with, you know, to, to kind of uh, aid him on the rear? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point and a very good possibility because it's not just, um, uh, there's lots and lots of different factors. The track was a lot worse on uh, on Sunday than it had been on Saturday. Um, uh, it was a lot hotter. It had the Moto2 rubber down, so so there was less grip. There was a bit more uh, wind coming off, um, uh, coming across the track as well, especially through turn, uh, turning 11 when you've got the bike banked over hard on the right-hand side very, very fast, and then you get a gust of wind. Uh, and if you don't have, you know, like a perfect feeling with the, with the front end and you're going through there a little bit hot, then it can get uh, very, very scary or even end in tears as, yeah. um, uh, as it did. Yeah, um, I think he said he had three moments at turn 11 and then we saw Crutchlow, uh, Iannone, Paul Espargaro all fall in there. Um, which is not a place where you want to where you want to fall at all. No, exactly, uh, and especially Crutchlow's crash because you saw Crutchlow crash and then you saw um, a Polis Bargaro crash immediately afterwards. So you know, right? Okay, that's <clears throat> that's that's conditions. That's definitely that's definitely sort of you know road road conditions. When two riders go down at the same time, um, that's that. There's more to it than just uh, than just a rider a rider mistake. Yeah, and it was quite perplexing to see Valentino Rossi struggle as he did. Um, and it wasn't just it wasn't just the race. This wasn't just a lousy race that he had. It was uh, it was a it wasn't a good weekend for him. He did he qualified off the front two rows. Um, he tried to improve his bike setup overnight, but I think he was ninth uh, in warm up on Sunday morning. He said that basically the, the team decided that they needed to take a really big risk with the setup, and that backfired quite spectacularly. He thinks if they hadn't taken that risk, he could have finished better, probably in the top six. Um, maybe even a bit higher maybe gone with Divizioso for example in fifth or um, around that area but uh, but in the end he had to basically um, just try and make it to the flag he said he was quite lucky to finish yeah exactly he also said he had a, he had a big vibration on the bike in the latter stages and you saw his, his times drop off I mean his times were getting he started on 140s and was doing sort of like you know lapping steadily in 141s and then all of a sudden he did a couple of 144s and you knew there was something a little bit more serious with the uh, uh, going on with the bike I think you know 10th position is not a reflection of his of his real ability at, uh, at Jerez that weekend 
but it was clear he said he said during the test you know the, the problem is the the marriage between the bike and the tires and they are still struggling for setup with that uh, with that machine they're still trying to struggling to try and find uh the the, the completely right balance between um you know front front and rear which is and which is so surprising with the um in comparison to his teammate because in the test on monday it was vinyala's fastest and rossi 21st which is just uh, insane yeah exactly and then to compound that confusion um we saw johan zarko having another storming ride uh, to fourth place um if, if if anyone has not done it may i just implore you to go to the moto gp website and uh, they have a free video of uh, Zarco's opening to the race. Um, basically, there's a camera placed on a seat looking forward, and uh, there's a free video showing the first three laps. Um, and in the first two laps, he's just absolutely sensational, absolutely brilliant. Um, I think taking three or four four positions, I think, in just over one lap um, from taking Vinales at the dry sack, uh, then I, th- I think, or maybe it was Rossi at the dry sack, I'm not sure. Um, and then just basically picking off the two factory Yamaha's, Crutzlow, Ian O'Neill, and then I think Marquez as well, all in all in very quick succession. Um, Zarko, again, was quite stunning, David. He really showed, uh, you know, his early form w- it was not just a one-off. Uh, I think about his passes this time, what was most impressive about him is they were all absolutely clinical they were perfectly clean there was none i mean the the incident with rossi at um in austin was uh he was getting a little bit um he was getting a little bit leery a little bit sketchy and he the, the way he took off from the line in um in qatar was uh well deeply entertaining but um uh, i think it was deeply entertaining for spectators but a good deal less entertaining for any, everyone else on the grid but now these these were you know perfectly clear perfectly Perfectly clean and perfectly executed uh, passes as well. And what I, the, the most telling thing to me was um, in the press conference afterwards when Mark Marquez says, yes, Arco, yeah, he reminds me a little bit of me, which is exactly what you would expect. Marquez, I think, said that um, his technique in 2013 was to just try and find a limit as much as possible. Maybe you'll crash, but, you know, fair enough. Then you'll know where the limit is and you can learn from that and go forward. Um, you know, and Zarko just seems to be absolutely willing to do that. Um, he knows at the moment that um, the second half of the race isn't quite his strongest point. That's something he's still trying to work with um, or work on. Um, but uh, but in the opening laps, he is he's quite quite fantastic. Yeah, exactly. What I also like was the fact that Lorenzo in the press conference sort of uh, agreed that it was a little bit like Marquez and that what he, he needed to learn to be a little bit more careful. So he re- is exactly like Marquez in 2013 <laughs> because that's, that's a, those more or less the same words that uh, that Lorenzo used about Marquez uh, at the time. So um, <laughs> it's uh, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. All the extra times in the intermediate classes, I think, has really paid off for him. Yeah, I remember reading an interview with uh, Valentino Rossi's ex-crew chief, Jeremy Burgess. Uh, I think it was from 2013 when Marquez was making a mark on the class and making a mark on the, the names of several of the, you know, the, the top guys in the, in the field. And, uh, you know, Jeremy Burgess was saying that this is, you know, whenever riders start criticizing others it's because there's an element of them not knowing how he's doing what he's doing and yeah. I, you know i think zarko can definitely take it as a compliment whenever someone like rossi or lorenzo is saying oh you need to be a bit careful you know because that's them thinking right <laughs> we we have a, another name to look out for here exactly well the, the, again there was an interesting contrast with uh, speaking to Jonas folger after the um uh, after the race i mean when zarko came into the tech three hospitality they he, he was welcomed with a massive round of applause which was uh, 
nice to see. But um, um, uh, Folger afterwards sort of said, yeah, well, when, when I passed Valentino Rossi, yeah, I knew I had to be a little bit careful. I didn't want to be, you know, didn't want to upset him. And Sarko has absolutely none of that. He's thinking, you, in my way, go. I am coming past. And he doesn't, he's, he's, he's colourblind, if you like. He doesn't see the colour of the bike ahead of him. All he knows is that uh, uh, it doesn't, it shouldn't be there. It should be behind him. And he's going to do his best to, uh, to, to make that uh, make that operative as soon as possible. Yeah, and he and he made this known as uh, as early as Saturday after uh, after qualifying. He kind of told I, I didn't speak to him on Friday. Sorry, on Sunday, uh, spoke to him after qualifying on, on Saturday, and he said that is going to be my tactic. I, I know that Pedroza and Marquez are on another planet in terms of pace, but hell, I'm just going to go and try and hang on to them and for as long as possible and see yeah. how that how far that gets me forward. So, um, yeah, really another deeply impressive uh, showing from uh, the class rookie. Yeah, um, and g- going to going to Le Mans next race, that's mm. got to be uh, that's got to be something to look forward to. Absolutely, yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how he deals with the pressure in Le Mans. I think because. One of the things Zarko said, I think we maybe mentioned it in the last podcast, he said that this year he's feeling no pressure whatsoever to perform, as opposed mm. to last year. Last year he was the defending champion and everyone was expecting him to be there and he said he felt it quite a lot. Um, this year, not so much, but I imagine come Le Mans in front of an expectant French crowd where he's kind of going to be the poster boy for the, the Grand Prix and the centre of attention. Let's just see how Johan deals with it then, you know, because, uh, you know, in terms of pressure, yeah, I think he might actually start to feel to feel some of it there. But, you know, let's hope he can continue in the similar vein. Absolutely. Yes. So just we'll touch a little bit uh, briefly on the test uh, that we that we ran on Monday. Uh, we were both uh, haggard and <laughs> depleted on energy and, uh, you know, basically just <laughs> phoning it in slightly, David, I, I think we could both say, but <laughs> as is so often the way in a Monday test when you're already a bit uh, a bit knackered. But um, some interesting things. Honda looks strong. Marquez was testing a new exhaust. Um, Mar- uh, Vinales, again, was strong, uh, as, as he had been at certain points during the weekend. Uh, but Valentino Rossi wasn't. He, he was 21st. I mean, it is only testing. And uh, Rossi didn't, didn't start riding until like two o'clock, by which time everyone else was up to speed. And uh, they'd put their, most of them had put their fastest laps in. And, you know, track conditions, uh, conditions were starting to deteriorate again as it got, uh, as it got hotter. Um, so it's it's uh, I wouldn't say that um, uh, Valentino Rossi was the twenty first fastest racer uh, uh, on the grid at the moment, but it is definitely a concern. He was very very worried about the um, uh, about the state of the bike. He says he still doesn't understand it. Uh, they tested obviously everyone tested the new harder or stiffer front tire. Uh, we were given strict instructions not to call it the new tire, but <laughs> to call it the Valencia tire because it's the tire which they raced there. Um, but that didn't help him much. I mean, he said he preferred it, but he but he also said it didn't really help him much. Yeah, and you know, going off Ross's comments uh, at the Qatar race, um, and then also perhaps at Austin, I think to an extent as well, um, we were almost led to believe that this tire would be the solution for his uh, his issues that he's been having in corner entry. Um, but you know, as you said, it was it was a slight improvement. There was no radical change. Uh, yeah, exactly. He he seemed to say mostly um, that. You know they've got to fix this. They can sort of they've got to first of all they've got to find a better setup, and they can fix a little bit of setup. But it really uh, it needs new parts for it to make it uh, for it to make a difference. And um, uh, they tried a new uh, the, both the Amar riders tried a new frame. Vinales liked it, and Rossi was not uh, was well not convinced at all. So um, I re I, well. 
I think it, they. I think Yamaha is in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, sure. But then we have to keep in mind that this is quite a unique track in terms of grip when it's this hot. Yeah. And, you know, we could go to Le Mans, which has recently been resurfaced, has a lot of grip, certainly suits the, the character of the Yamaha as well. Um, you know, so we could be saying this now and then be speaking about uh, a Yamaha 1-2 and just under two weeks' time. I have a sneaking suspicion that after Le Mans, we'll be, uh, we'll be sitting here talking, uh, saying, oh dear, oh, Honda in terrible trouble now, <laughs> they can, because the, the bike is still such a handful to, to ride, and now, uh, uh, you know, Yamaha were completely dominated at Le Mans, because, because the, the, the track has all the characteristics which, uh, which are really going to help the Yamaha, which, you know, bags and bags of grip, um, much more grip than it's had, um, uh, than it's had anywhere. I think uh, uh, Vinales, when he tested there, was a second and a half under the... Um, uh, uh, under the lap record and that was with um, with damp patches on the track which you sort of suspect that um it's we're going to get almost uh, almost saxon ring style um uh, style lap uh, lap times there yeah that should be interesting indeed absolutely so we'll reserve final judgment on uh, on yamaha for now um that pretty much brings us to the the end of uh, part two of this show we'll be back in a little minute with part three David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and a and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, so welcome back. Part three of the show. Uh, we are going to speak a little bit about our winners and losers from the weekend. But before that, we have the support classes to get through. Uh, Moto2, hmm, David, can we extend our chat on Moto2 to more than 60 seconds? This is going to be a great challenge considering it wasn't the best of races. Yeah, I think we could, I mean, we could waffle on for a little bit and get it to uh, to a minute and 15 seconds. But apart from that, it wasn't it wasn't exactly fantastic. Uh, the Mark VDS team just completely destroyed everyone they were fast in qualifying in, in practice they were you know um, basically it was Alex Marquez versus Franco, Franco Morbidelli and uh, Alex Marquez finally came out on top after Franco Morbidelli took himself out uh, made a mistake crashed and then it was all up to Alex Marquez not to fall off for the for the remaining what was it 10-15 laps something like that yeah, and you know, he, I think he actually nearly managed to do that as well. We saw a, an onboard uh, shot where he had a big, big moment coming out of the final corner, even though he had you know four or five seconds in hand. But uh, but we'll cut Alex some slack because it was actually a, a great weekend, a pole position, uh, his first win in Moto Two, and you know. Perhaps this this could be the start of a championship bid. Well, the 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 question is um, uh, how it affects him. This is so often the case where a rider has been close to a win for a little while, uh, and uh, you know it keeps on managing to 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 to, to fail. Um, you know, to mess it up for himself, which has definitely been the case for for Marquez. And um, uh, you know, a win under the belt—it's a massive, massive boost for uh, for his self confidence. So it's going to be—it certainly made the uh, uh, made the championship an awful lot entertaining, especially given the fact that um, uh, Frank uh, Franco Morbidelli got uh, got zero points. Absolutely, it's worth mentioning the gentleman in second place, Peko Banyaya, just his fourth race in the Moto Two class and a very, very fine second place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Pekka Banyaya was um, um, absolutely. Uh, I was he was outstanding on the Mahindra last year. Um, he was uh, also 
really surprisingly quick on the uh, Ducati MotoGP bike when he had uh, sort of a morning's testing on it on the um, uh, during the test uh, at Valencia, um, and it, he's. I mean. I suspect that uh, that Banyaya is one of those riders who is uh, a little bit special. He could be the next sort of um, uh, certainly as good as Rince, maybe as good as Vinales, but we shall uh, we shall have to wait and see. He spent time on a bad bike, which is always really really good for um, uh, for teaching a rider how to deal with adversity and and, and get the best out of himself. So yeah, uh, just really really impressed. You know, very strong performance. Yeah, and it's still a ridiculously, ridiculously early time to be speaking of such things. But I was speaking to someone uh, involved in a MotoGP team on the Monday, and Banyaya's name is already being mentioned as a MotoGP rider for 2019. So clearly, um, he's making an impression on you know certain people. Yeah, exactly. He's doing all the right things. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, so uh, yeah, I would be completely unsurprised in fact i'd be more surprised if he wasn't on a motor gp bike in 2019 than um uh, than uh, than if he was so um yeah as you say way 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 too early but um the, the kid's got something special definitely and on to the race of the day undoubtedly the race of the day and uh, moto 3 served up its usual uh, mixture of you know thrills and spills you know tears winners, losers. Um, it was quite spectacular all the way down to the final corner. And uh, a gentleman you might have tipped for the title, David, went on to win his first uh, Grand Prix race. Uh, Aaron Kinnett, fresh from uh, the disappointment of falling out of the lead at Texas when he seemed to be, the race seemed to be there for the taking. And uh, he came back with uh, with quite a brilliant last corner move to, you? Out, to you know, to out, uh, break Juan Mir and Romano Fanati. That was particularly impressive. You know, you know the, the mental strength to keep on hanging in there, and also just to to, to spot the opportunity. Perhaps Fanati. Uh, I mean, Fanati was obviously um, focusing on Mir, and that just opened up a little bit of a gap uh, on the inside of turn thirteen. And um, uh, Aaron Connets did not uh, did not need. Uh, a second invitation. He was uh, up there like a ferret, a ferret up a drainpipe, as we say. And um, he sees the opportunity to uh, took a win. And again, I think that's it. Uh, Kinesi is another rider who, now that he's got the win, that's going to that's that tiny little bit of confidence that he was missing. It's going to make a difference down uh, uh, down the line, I think. Yeah, exactly. And it, it sort of opens up the Moto Three Championship as well, because after the first two races, we thought, well. Mayor McPhee, Martin, these are going to be the the leading lights in the class this year. But um, you know, since all well, since Austin and Jerez, I think we can count uh, Kenneth and Fanadi as two names that we should uh, yeah. we should you know think about in the championship race too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Fanati is definitely back in it. He had two brilliant races. Um, uh, Juan Mir made a good recovery from uh, from a fairly uh, you know mediocre weekend at uh, in Austin. Uh, he's back on the podium. So far, it's been a completely Honda uh, Honda championship, and yet uh, there were two KTM's at the front of this weekend: Marcos Ramirez and Daryl Binder. And Daryl Binder was getting a little bit, um, uh, shall we say, enthusiastic. <laughs> I think that's just about right. Yes, exactly. It was it was two of the um, of the uh, Platinum Bay Real Estate uh, KTM team uh, members that were at the front, and not from the uh, the IO KTM or Sky VR Forty Six KTM squads, which uh, which I think came as a, as a big surprise. Um, but both of those guys really added quite a great deal to the uh, to the excitement in that race. And I, you know, I think that's one of the best 
most exciting uh, teams really uh, in the championship because I think Darren Binder really is a talent and Marcus Ramirez was one of those kids that almost it was it was almost as if he got left behind um, you know he was uh, really strong I think he was with the, the Monlau setup in the CEV back in 2013 um, and then obviously didn't have the funds to get into Grand Prix had a very brief spell in World Super Sport last year I think and then finally got into Grand Prix with, with the Platinum Bay real estate team and you know basically showed a round of circuit that he knows quite well or very well um, that he can be a real a real, uh, a real player. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a fantastic. It, it was a fantastic showing for both of them. And uh, d- interesting that what you say about a um, just missing out on opportunity. Because uh, I spoke to um, a Dutch rider um, the other day who was a, a basically a contemporary of Bo Bensnyder, and he said um, even though he was, he felt he was just as fast as Bensnyder and always managed to sort of uh, match him. He was always just sort of a little bit, uh, a little bit behind him, and uh, as a result, um, he, he never. The sort of the obligatory Dutch rider was always a role would was already filled and just kept on missing out. This was uh, Robert Schotman who's currently riding in um, in the uh, running on a Yamaha in the in the World Supersport 300 class, the new 300 class, uh, and he's showing there that he's immediately being, being competitive. So um, quite often, opportunity uh, racing is a lot about opportunity and, and being given an opportunity and seizing it is is really important. Clearly, uh, Ramirez has, has seen this opportunity and seized it with both hands. Yeah, and both of those guys, Binder and Ramirez, were obviously on um, Mahindra's last year, and I think they're finding that the KTM, even though it might not be quite the the Honda's equal, is uh, is much improved on uh, what Mahindra was last year. Same uh, same with Pekka Banyai. Spend a year on a on a Mahindra on a, on a bike which is not as competitive, and you have to try and extract uh, more from yourself to actually be competitive, and that's what makes a difference. So. If you can hear the sharpening of knives, yes, you're right. It is that time again. It's the time for our winners and losers segment where David and I will choose basically one or maybe more uh, winner from the weekend, in our humble opinion, and one loser. And then we'll debate which one should be basically the winner and the loser of the Spanish Grand Prix. David, because I'm a gentleman, I'm going to let you start. Who was your winner from the Spanish Grand Prix? When Adam delved and Eve span, who then was the gentleman? Uh, um, uh, The... Winner, winners and losers. Um, uh, for me, I think, I mean, there's lots to choose from. Obviously, you know, Danny Pedrosa had a fantastic weekend. Uh, Jorge Lorenzo had a um, uh, had an absolutely, um, uh, had a really strong weekend. That was really, really good for him. Uh, even Zarco, um, really worth it. But to me, I think the, the, the winner is uh, basically the Marquez brothers, uh, both of them. Alex, for winning his first race, it's been a very, very long time coming, um, and there were there have been times when it looked like he just wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, he finally managed to put it all together. He beat his teammate. Uh, his teammate loses uh, loses twenty five points. That's also a very uh, very important. It, it puts uh, uh, Alex back into um, uh, a little bit more back into contention in the in the championship. Um, I think it's the 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 sort of you know it, it's the kickstart which is cha- which is a championship uh, or his career needed if you like and then you know Mark alright he was only he only finished second and he had nothing for Pedrosa but he made up some serious serious points in the championship the the six points between him and championship leader uh, Valentina Rossi and I think he's what two or four points behind um, Vinales the championship is wide wide open again blown completely open that's fantastic for us as uh, as uh, as uh, as people who love the sport um, it's it, 
it's it, it's good for the championship. It's just uh, it's, it's really great. So I think uh, those two of them, both of them, uh, by the way, dedicating their um, their results to their mother. I think it was his mum who actually asked them uh, asked a question in the uh, in the press conference as well, which was uh, a strange moment because she had to actually read it from a piece of paper. Oh, it was uh, his grandmother. No. Oh, was his grandmother? Well, there you go. Well, there you go. It was his grandmother asking a question, which was a, yeah. a, a moment of uh, of comedy, certainly. And yeah, so to me, I think the Marcus uh, the, the Marcus brothers come out of uh, the Jerez weekend uh, having done extremely well. And yourself, who's your winner? Uh, my winner was Marcus Ramirez. Actually, it's quite an esoteric choice, but uh, but Ramirez really, I thought, was uh, was just wonderful to watch, and I thought it was a great uh, a great showing from a rider that. You know, if you kind of, it's almost like in the first few races, it, it was accepted that, you know, the KTM wasn't quite on the same level as, as the Honda. The Honda's really made such a big step this year in Moto3. And you almost feel that some of the, the riders on the KTM this year are, are not saying that that's holding them back solely, but, you know, that's one of the reasons contributing to some lackluster showings in Ramirez and Darren Binder to a lesser extent just, you know, didn't uh, didn't let any of that uh, enter to their, into their mind on race day. And they were well up for a fight. And Ramirez was really, really strong into the dry sack hairpin um, through most of the race. And yeah, wasn't really afraid to put um, some heavy moves on the best the class has to offer. Um, I thought he was a tad unlucky to finish off the podium. Um, but considering where that team was, um, you know, for most of last year, I thought it was really, really impressive. And I remember actually speaking to uh, to Tom Jojic last year when he was um, sort of in charge of KTM's Moto3 operation. And we were talking about Brad Binder, uh, you know, and how strong Brad Binder was in 2016. And Jojic said that really it was Brad's rides when he, he was on the Mahindra, and it was clearly an inferior bike back in 2014. Yeah. That, that is basically what singled Brad out for, you know, um, you know, for the, the IO um, a, a spot in uh, Aki Ayo's Moto3 team. Um, so I think um, for, for both uh, Darren Binder and Marcus Ramirez to be shown so strongly at the front of the Moto3 race is great. Um, Marcus Ramirez gets my vote for the winner of the weekend. Um, but David, I mean, you know, it's, it's quite hard to argue against a guy that finished second in the MotoGP race and the uh, the Moto2 race winner. I feel like you've been cheating this this week, <laughs> <laughs> having two nominations. <laughs> I think we'll probably can, have to you go. You can take for the, the average of them, I suppose. You can take the average of them instead of <laughs> instead of nominating two. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, right. Uh, On to the losers, then, David. Um, my loser is going to be as esoteric as yours, I think. My loser is um, uh, is the KT is the official KTM Moto Three team, uh, the KTM IO um, uh, team. Uh, Bo Ben Snyder. Well, he, Ben Snyder had a much better race than he had um, than he had all weekend. Uh, Anton Ali um, again had a well, not a. a and Mayris. And May, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, there's lots of talk of, you know, is the KTM the problem or um, or, or is it the team? Uh, everyone was assuming it was the KTM. And then uh, Daryl Binder and Marco Ramirez show everyone up and spend the entire race, you know, really slugging it out at the front and showing that there's, there's it's not, if there is something wrong with the uh, with the KTM, it's not that much, uh, there's not that much wrong with it. And um, yeah, so for me, it was, the IO team obviously Danny Kent had a um, test on the bike he was brought in to begin a test on the bike on uh, on the Tuesday uh, we have no news of that other than that um, you know he was riding he'll be riding as a wild card at uh, Le Mans to try and uh, do, you know ju- just to see what it is and I think he's basically been brought in as a benchmark to um, 
give a little bit of feedback and also to show uh, Antonelli and Ben Snyder, you know, if he beats them, then it's uh, buck your ideas up, lads. Um, uh, and if he's, you know, finishing the where they are, then there's something more structurally wrong within the team or with the bike. Yeah, because I think going all the way back to 13, when Louis Salon was riding in that team, the IO bikes have pretty much been, you know, championship contenders every single year in Moto3. In fact, even going back a year before then, 2012, was that when Cortese won it? Yeah, that was, yeah, it was yeah. So, yeah. So pretty much, uh, yeah, all the way back then. Yeah, basically, uh, if, you, if you're on the IO bike, you are expected to uh, be fighting for the championship and neither Antonelli nor Ben Snyder are at the moment. Yeah, or look to be anywhere near uh, doing yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, I'm going to be slightly controversial and say that Valentino Rossi was the big loser of this race weekend um, because I'm also factoring in Monday uh, to a slight extent as well. Just because I, I really thought Rossi was going to be able to at least get in the podium. Um, and yeah, he just was never really in the frame the whole weekend. And we've kind of got used to that on, on Friday. Um, on Saturday, he seemed to be speaking fairly confidently for Rossi on, on, on Saturday. Um, you know, he said there was still a big margin to improve. Um, yes, he was having issues with grip, but, you know, that's never really held him back before. Um, and, yeah, it just seemed that, uh, you know, both he and the team made a bit of a meal of it um, on Sunday, you know, taking that big risk, which really didn't pay off. And, uh, yeah, to see Rossi lapping Hareth some four seconds off the the race winner you know per lap um was you know spoke of um spoke of you know an issue and and just him getting it wrong really um so I could totally see that I think when you're taking a gamble then often it means it's a sign that you feel that you've got nothing to lose which is generally a sign that you're um pretty much in big trouble so um yeah it's a sign that they are um they do have problems also the things that he was saying on uh on uh, monday was basically admitting okay we're in much much deeper trouble than we uh, than we thought we were which makes his the contrast with him and uh and his teammate all the all the greater i think sure uh i sort of had a i quietly thought that he might actually be able to win at jareth uh, coming into the weekend but uh that was just never going. That was, I mean, as soon as as soon as practice gone away, it uh, it looks almost completely impossible. Absolutely, absolutely. But he's still leading the championship, so we have to give him that. Uh, so perhaps that would uh, tilt this in the favour of your uh, nomination, David. The IO KTM Moto Three squads. I disagree. I think uh, I think that the fact that Valentino Rossi admitted he might still be leading the championship. But I think the trouble he had, especially on the test on Monday, is a really bad sign for the uh, uh, for the next few races. And obviously, he'll be going, especially going to Mugello. Once they get to Mugello, he will want to be on the podium there, and uh, they're really going to have to they're going to need to find something if he if if he wants to have any hope of that. Yeah, and it's almost as if um, Marquez said on Sunday that if he can get to um, where was it? I think it was Assen. If he can go to Assen, having not lost a great deal of points in the upcoming three races, which he thinks are, you know, not bogey tracks, but definitely Yamaha tracks, um, then he'll be good. So it's almost as if the pressure's on both Vinales and Rossi to try and, you know, stretch out as many or gain as many points as possible on Marquez before, you know, Saxon ring where he's great and, you know, then we'll see what happens from there. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to look forward to in the next uh, in the next few races. So that brings us to a close of this episode of the Panic Pass podcast. Um, I'd like to thank Mr. David Emmett of motomatters.com. Um, thank him for joining us for this week. Thank you very much, David.
And I'd like to thank Mr. Neil Morrison for um, hosting this uh, podcast like the master that he is. Absolutely no problem at all, David. Thank you very much. We hope that you, listener, have enjoyed our company. And uh, I guess now is as good a time as any to remind you that if you haven't been following us on Twitter, you really should. That is at Paddock Pass Pod. Uh, the same can be applied to Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Pod. And also, if you're listening to us via iTunes, it would be wonderful, really wonderful if you could leave us a review because it really helps other listeners find the show. Um, so, Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. <laughs> I am recording, are you? I am recording. Sexual energy and chocolate and <laughs> beauty. Okay. Let me, I, I must, I must. Neil. What do you think people should be doing for the Paddock Pass podcast? Well, other than listening to the Paddock Pass podcast, following it on Twitter, at Paddock Pad... Oh, fuck, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry, let's, uh, let's do that again. Right.